You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and turn to the book of Galatians. We're back in Galatians this morning. We began this series a little while ago, and we are going to finish chapter 3. title today is The Law Points to Faith. The law reveals the depths of our sin and our need for God's incredible grace in Jesus Christ. That's going to be the main point that we're going to look at today. Now, um, we've taken a little bit of a break in Galatians just over a couple weeks, and so let me kind of recap what has happened. Uh, Paul came on his missionary journeys, and he traveled to Galatia, where he preached the gospel. People believed, and a church was planted. And since then, there have been these people who have come called Judaizers, and they have been giving a false teaching. Paul came and said, we're saved by grace by faith in Jesus Christ, and these Judaizers say, well, Jesus is good, but if you really want to be saved, if you really want to have all that God offers, you must keep Old Testament law like circumcision. And so they are communicating a gospel of works, whereas Paul communicated a gospel of grace. Now, as I've read this um, many times just this week and in the weeks before, kind of makes me feel like the Judaizers come across as the cocky college students who have read one book or they just read a few blogs and therefore they think they're experts on the subject. you ever know what I'm talking about there? They read one thing and they come and they say, we know what the whole Bible is about. And so therefore they come to Galatia and say, look, we read this book on law and now we know exactly what the gospel is and how people are saved. And so then they communicate it, and it seems somewhat persuasive. And they fold their arms, and they think, ha, take that, Paul. We made you and your gospel look foolish. But Paul's not intimidated. He is the professor. He knows the Bible. And so what he has done through chapter 3 is he's given three arguments on the foolishness of trusting in the law and why the gospel comes by grace. And so the first argument was the testimony argument, and that was in verses 1 through 5. Paul looks at the Galatians and he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? He just says, look at your own testimony. Were you earning God's grace or did he simply give you grace? And of course, the answer is that God gave grace. Then he gives the Abrahamic argument in verses 6 through 9. What, we, what he points out is Abraham, who is the father of God's people, he was saved by faith. And then Paul's point is, if Abraham was saved by faith, everyone else will be like Abraham and be saved by faith as well. And then he gives the curse argument in verses 10 through 14. And this one is, look, if, if you trust in the law, you're under a curse. The law brings a curse. In fact, that's why Jesus came. Christ came to redeem us from the curse. And so Paul then quotes from the Old Testament, showing that the righteous shall live by faith. Not works, but by faith. Now in these three arguments, Paul has combated the arguments of the Judaizers. But it would be easy now for the Galatians to begin thinking... Okay, but these Judaizers really emphasize the law a lot. I mean, there's the Ten Commandments when Jesus came down, or God came down, shakes the mountain, Moses and all the people receive the Ten Commandments. And then there's like these 600 other laws that God gives. I mean, those seem pretty important. What do we do with that? 
How do these work? What is the relationship between the law and the promise? And so now what Paul is going to do in verses 15 through 29, he wants to show the relationship between the law and the promise. And he's going to let us see the function and the purpose of the law, why it does not lead to sal- why it does not provide or produce salvation, but how it leads to Jesus, the one who does save us. And so before we dig in, let me remind you of at least two things, what the promise is and what the law is. Um, In our text, we're going to see the word promise many times. And when we see the word promise, it's referring to when God comes to Abraham and he he saves him and uh, he communicates to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through Abraham. But that produces a problem because Abraham doesn't have any children. And so Abraham one day comes and says, how is this going to come true? And God then says, he takes him outside, looks at the sky, which we might have today. doesn't look like there's many clouds up there. And he says, look at all the stars. As many stars are in the sky will be how your offspring is. And then what we see is that God provides an offspring. And then later in Genesis 22, we learn that the offspring will eventually possess the gate of his enemies. And all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through the offspring. And so Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And we're slowly looking forward to this particular offspring which all the nations will be blessed. And who he will possess the, enemies of, uh, possess the gate of his enemies. And so that's what we're looking at, the promise, that there's an offspring coming who's going to bless all people. And then there's the law. Now the law comes through Moses after Israel, who's now comes from the line of Abraham. They've been in Egypt, and God sends Moses to bring them out of Egypt. They come to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God comes down, shakes the mountain. There's lightning and there's thunder. Moses walks down from meeting with God with the Ten Commandments. And then at Mount Sinai, they receive ceremonial, civil, and moral laws that all make up the law, um, which describe how God's people are to live. So the promise is characterized by, by grace, um, and the law is largely characterized by, by works, by doing. What does it look like to be God's people? And that's what the law it communicates. So those are kind of, keep those in mind as we're going through. Uh, and we're going to read verses 15 through 29. So I'm going to invite you to stand. It is a little bit lengthy, and so if you need to sit during it, uh, that's okay. But we stand here um, In reverence of the Word of God, we believe it comes inspired by God, and so we do so in order to honor God. Chapter 3, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. 
For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Father, give us, give us wisdom today as we look at this text. Help us to undersee, understand the relationship between the law and the promise. Help us to understand what the Old Testament law functioned as. Help us to see the, the, the beauty of it. Help us to see how it leads to Jesus. Help us to better understand the gospel. And Lord, as this passage is meant to produce assurance, to comfort our souls, to increase our faith, may that happen today. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. May we see the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ, and how he redeems us from the curse, how he redeems us from the guilt that the law reveals in us. Lord, be with us now in your name, Jesus. Amen. You all may be seated. Uh, We're going to start out the first point. The plan has always been that God's blessing would come through the promise of Jesus Christ. That's always been the plan. There's never been another plan, and the Judaizers have acted as the law, which came later, has annulled or, or ratified or, 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 not, or erased the, um, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God has given. They're saying that salvation is by works, By obeying the law. But Paul's going to show first the permanence of covenants. In verse 15, if you look, he says, Human covenants are not broken. Even even man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Then in verse 17, he says, Certainly God's covenants are not annulled either. So it's kind of a lesser to greater. Look, if we don't break our covenants, then surely God does not break his covenants either. Now when covenants were made... Two parties would come together. They would cut an animal. Um, could, be, um, could be pigeons. Could be a lamb. Could be anything. They'd cut the animal. They'd separate them. And then the two parties who were making the covenant would, make, would walk in between the cut animals as to say, if I break the covenant, may what has been done to these animals be done to me. And so covenants were very serious. They weren't made whimsically, and I don't know that we understand them very well because uh, marriage, for one, is to be a covenant, but we see many divorces today. We see promises broken. We see contracts broken very easily today. Uh, So when we read covenant, we have to come back to the understanding these things are not broken. These are very, very solemn. If they're broken, it could very well lead to your death. Now, in between these verses that show the permanence of covenants, we have verse 16, which shows the magnitude of the promise. In verse 16, we read, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, Paul is not making a grammatical argument here. He's making a theological one. The reason is, is because the word um, offspring in the Hebrew is a collective noun, meaning it's plural. It refers to offsprings, but Paul is saying it's offspring, and his point is the entire Old Testament has been pointing towards Jesus. The entire um, Old Testament, all the promises, all the verses, everything that we see in the Old Testament has been leading to the coming of Jesus. And if you remember when Jesus has risen from the grave, he's on the Emmaus Road, walking with the two disciples, we're told in Luke 24 that he tells them from the prophets and from the writings and from the entire Old Testament how everything was leading to him. I believe it's in 1 Peter in the first few verses there that Peter says the entire Old Testament was leading toward Jesus regularly throughout the new testament we see the authors talking about every part of the old testament was leading towards jesus so paul's point is that when god made a promise to abraham that you're going to have an offspring and that through the offspring all nations will be blessed that's ultimately jesus which means that all the way back in genesis 12 thousands of years prior to galatians being written 4,000 years almost before our time, God is saying Jesus is coming and it's through him all nations will be blessed. Jesus is the true fulfillment of the Abrahamic Abrahamic promise. This is why the law does not replace the promise. If the law replaces the promise, Jesus doesn't come. That's why. It, It can't replace because if it does, we wouldn't need Jesus. It would have changed the order of salvation, but because it was given by promise, and it's through grace that we're saved, therefore, the law does not replace the promise. But we learn something here about humanity. We learn that every single person has a little bit of a legalist and a Pharisee inside of them. The natural bent of your heart, the natural bent of my heart, is to trust in our works more than God's promises. We naturally pervert God's grace and act as though we're worthy of salvation, that God ought to give us salvation. I mean, think about it. Have you ever said something like this? God, I did this, therefore you are to do this. Have you ever thought that? Now, maybe you thought of it like this. Maybe something bad has happened, and so you've reasoned it this way. God, how can you do this? I've been a good Christian. Or you might have said that about someone else. I can't believe these things are happening to that person. I mean, they read their Bible. They're at church all the time. They do these things, these works. Surely these works would mean nothing bad would happen to them. Or we might say something like this. I prayed. I prayed a whole lot. I prayed so much. But why didn't God do what I asked? Did I not pray enough? Was I not in the Bible enough? Have you ever thought something like that? I've heard people say that before. Or what about this? This is the foxhole prayer. God, if you help me now, then I will read the Bible, attend church, do all of these things, whatever it is. And it's really a transaction. God, I'm going to say, I'll put my quarter in, pull the slot. You do your action, and I'll do my action, and we have a good transaction that takes place here. Have you ever thought like that? That's how we naturally think. That's the bent of our sinful hearts. We think that we can earn our salvation we think that we can prove that we're worthy we'd rather trust in ourselves than in god's grace 
But think about that. If that's true, do you have assurance of your salvation? What would the assurance be? How well you feel that day? How hard you work that day? What if you didn't work hard that day? What if you're not feeling well that day? Then do you not have salvation? Your assurance would be as fickle as the wind and it blows. But the good news is, is because salvation is based upon Jesus, it's not on a whim. But yet Jesus, we're told, is the rock of our salvation. And so, therefore, we can have great assurance at all times that we have assurance in our salvation, that we are saved, that we're forgiven of our sins because of what Jesus has done. This is what Paul is bringing out. In verse 18, he says, The inheritance comes by promise because God gave it to Abraham by promise. Meaning Jesus has always been the plan. There's never been a plan B. There was never, Jesus is not an afterthought, but God has always planned that it would be through Jesus all the blessings of God would be experienced. So this leads to another question which Paul asks in verse 19. Why then the law? Okay, if the law doesn't replace the promise, it doesn't annul it, why did God give us the law? If the law doesn't provide salvation, what is the basis of it? And so that's what we have in verses 19 through 29. Paul is going to describe the character of the law and its function and its purpose, and then he's going to describe the character of the promise. And so we'll start by looking at the character of the law. The first thing we see is the law revealed and increased sin. Look at verse 19. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come. It was added because of transgressions. Let me read just a couple other verses, and I want you to just hear, what do these verses say about the law? Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came, to in, came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So law comes, what else happens? Sin, interaction, increases. Sin increases. So law is given, Sin increases, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So here comes the law. Now what do we know? We are? Did the law make us sinners? No, it reveals that we're sinners. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Why? Because the law doesn't make you righteous. The law shows you that you're unrighteous. Here we see it's because of the law, sin increased and we became aware of sin. You didn't, you don't know that you're a sinner until there's a law. And once there's a law, you see that you're a law breaker. The law doesn't make us sinners, it proves that we are sinners. You ever see one of those signs that say, wet cement, stay off? What's underneath that sign? Well, true. And someone's initials? Right? Someone's footprint? Because what does the law do? It excites our sin. You tell the child, no cookies. What does the child want? Wants cookies. So I remember growing up, like I love ice cream. Ice cream is, is like my thing. I love ice cream. Growing up, you'd be sneaking downstairs, grabbing a spoon out of the drawer, making the way to the freezer, opening up the carton of ice cream, and taking you know, as many bites as you can before you hear the footsteps of mom coming down the steps or something. I knew it's not right, I really wanted that ice cream. And even though there was a law that said, do not have ice cream, do not eat out of the carton of the ice cream, do not eat until after you've had dinner or whatever it is, 
I really wanted it. And the more I was told not to, the more I wanted it. The law, it excites our sin. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7. Notice the relationship between the law and sin. He says, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. So the law is not sin. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Okay, we've already seen that. Law brings awareness of sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But Now notice what happens. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, what that means, sin lies dead, it's not that you're not a sinner, but it's when we're given law, it excites the sin so that it comes alive all the more. And as Paul is told, you shall not covet? Oh, now I want to covet. You shall not have cookies? Now I want cookies. The law excites our sin. Now notice in verse 19, the word that Paul uses for sin is transgression. Now that word specifically refers to law breaking, to transgress God's law. We break God's law. We are rebels. This is Paul's point. He wants us to understand the law does not save the law increases sin. The law makes us aware of sin. This is what Martin Luther said, the great reformer. The law cannot do anything except that with, that with its light it illumines the conscience for sin, death, judgment, and the hate and wrath of God. Before law comes, I am smug and do not worry about sin. When the law comes, it shows me sin, death, and hell. Surely this is not being justified. It is being sentenced, being made an enemy of God, being condemned to death and hell. Therefore, the principal purpose of the law in theology is to make men not better but worse. That is, it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring. You see the purpose of the Old Testament law? is to increase sin, to make us aware of sin, so that it would lead us to Jesus. That's the purpose of the Old Testament law. Now you still might be wrestling, this doesn't sound good. I mean, the law, it excites sin. It makes me aware that I'm sentenced to hell. An MRI machine, what does that do? It reveals what's inside of you, right? It reveals if you have cancer inside of you or have some other sickness inside of you. Does the MRI machine make you sick? No, it reveals that you are sick. It reveals that there's something deadly within you. That's what the law does. And then just as the MRI machine diagnoses us, it doesn't heal us, but it now will lead us to what do we do? How does this situation be rectified? The law reveals our hearts to be sinful so that it would lead us to Jesus that then we would understand how we can be forgiven. That is the primary function of the law. Number two, the law is inferior to the promise. You can't trust the law for salvation. It's inferior to the promise. Look at verse 19 and 20. We see that the law is put in place by angels through an intermediary. Now, if you go back to Exodus, you don't really see angels there. But if you read Hebrews, Deuteronomy, and Acts, all these authors will tell you that there was angels present at the giving of the law, and the intermediary is Moses. 
And so the whole point that Paul is saying is, look, the law comes through angels to Moses to the people. But how did the promise come? Abraham to God, or God to Abraham. It was direct. Simply showing that there's a difference, that the law is inferior. Now remember, to say it's inferior does not mean it's, sin, mean it's sinful, does not mean it's bad. Paul in Romans 7 says it's good, it's holy. But Paul wants us to understand the law in the trajectory of Scripture. The law comes as an expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. When the covenant comes to Abraham, it comes to a person, right? One person, who then has a son, who then has another son, who then has 12 sons, who then after about 400 years, they're about a million people, right? And, and they're sitting to be pretty large. God redeems this million people out of Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai where he gives them the law. The law comes as the next stage in redemptive history. The promise is given to Abraham, which then leads to the law, because how is this gigantic people supposed to live for God? The law comes as the instruction of what it is. It's simply another stage of redemptive history. It doesn't nullify what happened earlier. It just simply expands now. How do we live as God's people? Third, the law has a temporary function. I think this one is not in your bulletin i added it sorry verse 19 the law was added because of transgressions and then what's the next word until the coming offspring should come verse 24 the law was our guardian until christ came verse 25 because faith has come meaning jesus we are no longer under a guardian so the law functions as a guardian. When Christ comes, we no longer have a guardian. So there is a temporary function of the law in the Old Testament that now, in the New Testament where we live, it no longer operates as. It doesn't mean that we don't use the law, but that there's a part, there's a function of the law that has been completely changed now because Christ has come. So what is that function? Number four, the law enslaves Notice the words that are used to describe the law in this text. Verse 23. It's captive. We're held captive under the law. Imprisoned. Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian. Does the law bring freedom? Captive, imprisonment, guardian. What's Paul's point? It doesn't bring freedom. It brings bondage. The bondage, is now it's not like a a prisoner to a warden type relationship. The word guardian is the word pedagogue in the New Testament. And the pedagogue would be a slave of a household who would be assigned uh, to a child between the ages of about 6 and 16. And he would watch over the child. He would teach the child. He would discipline the child. The slave, in a sense, guarded, watched over. The child was, in a sense, a bond uh, in bondage to this slave as he watched over everything that this child did and what was the point it was for the point to prepare him for adulthood it was preparing the child so that one day when he reached of age would be able to receive the inheritance of the father that's what the law does in the old testament for israel it functions as this guardian teaching them disciplining them preparing them 
for the day when Jesus would come. So that when Jesus comes, they go, that's what we need. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament have been leading to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. All the priesthood has ultimately led us to believe in Jesus, the high priest. Everything in the Old Testament now is seen prophetically pointing towards Jesus. That's what the law does. It trains us. It disciplines us. It shows how guilty we are, how dirty we are, how desperate we need a redeemer. And then comes Jesus, that we believe in him. And through Jesus, what happens? We receive the full inheritance. So the law guards Israel as it's a child, as it's immature, that as it moves through redemptive history and that Christ comes we would become sons, we would become mature, and we would receive the inheritance that comes in Jesus. This leads to the last point. The law does not give life. Why does Paul say don't trust in the law? Well, it's a guardian. It's to prepare you for Jesus. The law doesn't give life. Verse 21, we see the law does not give life. Why? That's not its purpose. Well, what's the purpose? Increase sin, reveal sin, prepare us for Jesus. That's the role of the law in the Old Testament. So don't trust in it. Judaizers are saying, trust in the law. They think they're the college student. They've read the manual of the law. They've crossed their arms, thinking they're cocky, thinking that they know. But in essence, essence, they've just proven how foolish they are. They didn't actually understand the law in redemptive history. They didn't understand the law, how it comes out of the Abrahamic promise and flows towards Jesus. They were operating in a very immature standpoint. So now Paul wants to transition, and he wants us to see the beauty of the promise. Notice what he does. In verse 23, now before faith came, we're held captive. Notice, before faith came, before Jesus comes, we're held captive. Then verse 25, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We're no longer captive. He's demonstrating the two errors here. Old Testament, before faith came, now verse 25, now that faith has come. He wants us to see the joy and the assurance and the confidence that we have. Now, as we read this, as we look at this, You have to understand, you have to see the excitement in Paul, the energy in Paul, the confidence that we have. This is not written like you read the dictionary. I don't know of many people that get excited reading the dictionary. I had to look up pedagogue. I wasn't going, pedagogue, wow, look at this. I just kept reading through P's. So we made it to R's and S's. I mean, nobody reads the dictionary for fun, but Paul. He wants the Galatians to see this is foolish trusting in the law. Now he says, now let me show you why we trust in Jesus. Let me show you what the promise has done for us. So the promise here is to increase our joy, increase our assurance, and to increase our confidence. So as we go through this, let that be your prayer. Say, God, right now, as we look at this passage, increase my joy, increase my confidence, increase my assurance in you. Number one, the promise provides justification by faith. Look at verse 24. So then the law was their guardian. Until when? Until Christ came. Why? In order that we might be justified by faith. Paul's whole point to the Galatians is that we would know 
that they would know, and we today, we're not justified by works, but we're justified by faith. Do you know that? You are not justified before God by the things that you do. It's only by grace through faith in Jesus. Look at the next thing. The promise gives freedom. Notice in verse 25, because faith has come, meaning Jesus, we're no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under a guardian. We're no longer captive. If you go over to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, what does he say? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the law. We've been set free. We're free. Upon reaching adulthood, the guardian is no longer needed to watch the child. The child has been trained. The child has reached maturity. In Christ, we have now reached maturity. Do you know that? In Christ, we now are able to receive the full inheritance of the Father. All the blessings, all the goodness of God comes to us through Jesus. Amen Amen indeed. Now why? Why does it come to us through Jesus? Number three, the promise gives adoption. Look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are what? All? All? For in Christ Jesus, you are all? Man, isn't that good news? Yeah, that's good news. Like, we had donuts here today, people. Should it be on your sugar rush? We need more donuts next time. More donuts. No, we don't. This is good. Like, now think about this. Paul, he's writing, don't trust in the law. It's It's enslaving you. It's a bondage. It's guardian. It doesn't give you life. It only reveals that you're a sinner. Trust in the promise. Why? You're free. And you're adopted as a son of God. This is perhaps the greatest or one of the greatest truths in the Bible. God gives his son to die on a cross so that you and I, by faith, would become sons. This isn't some sexist thing. Jesus is a son, so we believe in him. We become sons. We have the same status as, as Jesus, and we are adopted in the family of God. No one forces their way into a family like if you come to my house today and you push open the door and you come sit at our table and we all look at you awkwardly like why are you here you're not family you know what i mean like that doesn't make you my son because you eat at my table might mean you get bit by my dog my dog usually doesn't bite my children sometimes maybe takes a nip but it doesn't make you family. You're not family because you work your way into my house. Or even if you come and you fix all my sprinklers, which I've been working on, and you do really cool things in my house, and you make me my dinner tonight, doesn't make you my son. I'll say thank you. Now leave. <laughs> I would. Thank you. But it's nighttime. You need to go. We're only made sons through grace. Not by works, not by forcing our way into someone's house, not by saying, let me prove to you what I am. We're sons by grace because the Father chooses to bless us through Jesus that by faith in him, we would be redeemed, forgiven, and would be adopted so that we will never leave his house. And so that just as Jesus is welcome, so we are welcome because we have the same status as Jesus. Do you understand that? When God looks at Jesus, 
He looks at you the same way. The law doesn't do that. Grace does that. Why? Because the next point, number four, the promise unites us to Jesus. Look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Look at verse 28, the end of it. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul has already emphasized this at the end of Galatians 2 where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The whole idea is we've been united to Jesus. We're one in Christ Jesus. We have put on Christ. The reason we're adopted into God's family is because we've been united to Jesus. The death of Jesus has become our death. The life of Jesus has become our life. His resurrection is our resurrection. His righteousness is now our righteousness. Do you hear that? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is what it says. For our sake, God made him to be sin, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why we have confidence. This is why we have assurance in our, in our salvation. We've been united to Jesus. So now when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, a sinner, guilty. He sees holy. He sees righteous. He sees his son, Jesus. Isn't that good news? Now think about this. This means you can never, ever, 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 ever be declared guilty again. Do you know that? Why? You've been united to Jesus. You're righteous. You cannot be separated and be called guilty now. You've been united and adopted. You see why this is one of the amazing truths? This union and this adoption? You have been united to Jesus. Number five. The promise results in equality with the saints. You know what law does? What does law do? It promotes superiority and pride, right? When law becomes your focus, you constantly are comparing yourselves with others, thinking who is better. Now just real quick, think about the people in your life. Do you have compassion towards them? Love towards them? Grace towards them? Are you sensitive towards them? Are you wanting to meet their needs? Or do you often think, well, they get what they deserve? Are you often thinking, they're, I'm better than they are? Do you often treat them as if they're lower than you? Or do you treat them as they're better than you? The Pharisees are a great example of this in the New Testament. They knew the law. They kept much of the law. They didn't believe in Jesus. And when they walked around town, they constantly looked down upon Jesus. They looked down upon the poor. And they looked down upon all the social outcasts. They saw themselves as better. Notice what, remember what they said to Jesus. Why do you eat with sinners? You see what the undertones are? We don't eat with sinners. We are better than that. We are right. Why are we right? Because we keep the law. I can give you my moral resume. And this tells you I am better than you and you and you and you. I wasn't really pointing at you. But that's what we do when we keep the law. Think about, uh, remember the story of Esther? We were in that in Easter. Who was the antagonist? Five points. Amen. Five points. There we go. That's all you get. Don't you wish you got more? 
Haman. He walks around. Everyone is supposed to bow before him. And everyone does bow before him except one person, Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow. And Haman hates that Mordecai doesn't bow. He's infuriated that he doesn't bow. He, he doesn't say all these other people bow because that's good. He doesn't try to understand Mordecai. He doesn't care any about that. He's filled with rage. I have earned this position. I have this position. I am better than Mordecai. He will bow before me. When law is your concern, you are constantly looking at other people as your obstacle or a hurdle. Something to get around and something to get over. That's how you look at people. This is how the world works, right? Think about it. Isn't this where we get the, it's a dog-eat-dog world? Isn't this the way that we, we work in order to get ahead in life, to get the next promotion? And if somebody does get a promotion before us, what do we say? Well, I've, I've been a part of this company longer than they have. I worked harder than they have. I show up early. I know I'm better than them. You see how easily works become the basis of how we think through everything? The Judaizers are saying if you really want to be saved, if you really want to receive all that God has, keep this law. You might be saved now, but you're not going to sit very close to God. But if you want the good seats in heaven, you need to keep this law. And what they're doing is they're presenting some type of multi-tiered Christianity. There's the really good Christians, there's the maybe okay Christians, and there's the Christians who just slip in. But does anyone slip into heaven? Does anyone squeeze into heaven? It's only by the blood of Jesus that we're saved. So look at, the, look at the vision that Paul gives us in verses 28 and 29. This is the vision of the church. This is a product of what it looks like to be saved by the promise. He says in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to the promise. Now Paul is not saying there's no distinction in the church. He's not saying there's not men and female. He's not saying when we when we all become in the church we all lose our sexual and and our ethnicities and all those kind of things. He's not saying we lose those distinctions, but no longer do those things separate us. The things that separate us in the world, our color, our race, our sex, our social, our social status, they don't separate us in the body. In the body we have the rich and the poor sit together. The black and the white sit together. We have all people as one body. Why? Because we're in Christ. And as we're in Christ, we become heirs according to the promise, and we possess all that God has. The least person here and the person with the most are all equal in the eyes of God. And when this happens, we see how we're able to actually fulfill now, the real true commandment of the law, that we love one another, right? Because no longer do we see each other with these distinctions that separate us. I'm better than them. They're better than me. They do this. I do this. But we see each other with the same love that God has for us and that he sent his son for us to die so that we could be saved. And now we love one another with that love, that we become one body. Because just as you possess the entire inheritance of God, so I possess the entire inheritance of God. We all together possess the entire inheritance of God. Not one of us more than the other. Not one of us more deserving than the other. When you struggle with assurance, 
when you struggle with confidence, and, and we do, don't we at times? Especially maybe when difficult times are in our life, we struggle. Am I really saved? How do I know that I'm saved? We come back to the truth that's here in Galatians, where he's saying, look, it's not by law. It's by grace in Jesus Christ through faith. That's how you are saved. And so we come back to these truths. And these truths are meant to, to wrap us. We went camping this last weekend, so like, like a down blanket wraps around you. And, and what happens as you wrap a down blanket around you? It increases the heat around you, and it warms you, and it warms you, and it warms you. That's what the truths of this passage are meant to our soul. They're supposed to be wrapped around us that it warms our soul. So that it moves us away from trusting in law, from our own works, from our own actions, to fully trusting in Jesus, to knowing that even those times in my life where I feel as though I'm far from God, or those times in my life where I'm questioning salvation because of whatever emotional roller coaster I'm in right now, I can come back to the truth of God's word. I can have that wrapped around me. My joy can be increased, even though my situation remains the same. And that I can know that I'm saved. I can know that I'm a child of God. I can know that even though it feels as though I possess nothing, that in the eyes of God, I'm united to the Son, adopted as family, and I'm an heir of all that God has. So remember, there is a little bit, or much, of a legalist, of a Pharisee in every one of us. And we're going to battle our entire lives against trusting in God and trusting in ourselves. That will be a battle that will always fight. We might grow and do better against that battle in time, but we will constantly be battling, who am I trusting in? What am I trusting in? We have 39 books in the Old Testament as a commentary on why we do not trust in our own actions, why we do not trust in the law, and how the law is meant to lead us to, to Christ that we would trust in him. So we must know our Bibles. I want to encourage you to know your Bible. And even as, as your children here, and you might be young, um, we get Bibles for you that you would know the God. And as you grow older into your adolescence and your teenage years, we want to have Bibles for you. And if you're here, we want to have Bibles for you. If any of you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of the white Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you know someone without a Bible, take that and give it to them. I encourage you, then read the Bible with them also. Talk with other people about the Bible. Talk with your children about the Bible. Talk with your spouse about the Bible. Remind yourself regularly, we are not saved by works or by trusting in ourselves, but only by the grace of Jesus. God has always planned on sending His Son. The plan has always been that we'd be saved through Jesus. We never turn to the law. We already have everything in Christ. Let me pray. Father, Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to the cross, that we could be saved, that we could be redeemed, that we could be adopted into your family, that we could be united to your son Jesus, to never, ever, ever be separated, but to have absolute and complete assurance that because of faith in you, we are are saved. We are not saved based upon our effort, but we are saved based upon your son, Jesus Christ. May we know that. May we embrace that truth. May we remind one another about that truth on a daily basis. God, we thank you on how you've given us the law 
that it would function in a way to reveal our sin, to show our need for Jesus, so that as we read the gospel, we would embrace it wholeheartedly. And Lord, I pray that we do as a church, that we would embrace the gospel, that we would learn the gospel, that we would read it well, that we would teach it to our children, that we'd know it and teach it to our spouses, that we'd embrace it and sing it with one another, that we'd teach it to our neighbors and to our coworkers, that they too might experience the redemption that is found in your son Jesus, that they might be adopted into your family, that they might become united to Jesus, receive your righteousness, and become an heir of all that you have through Jesus by grace. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you how you inspired the Apostle Paul to write Galatians, that we would better understand the gospel. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. See you.